our earpiece and boom mic decided that it had been bent one too many times last Sunday morning and we're waiting on parts. We are again this morning in the book of Nehemiah. We'll be looking at chapter 6 and a couple of verses in chapter 7. And as I'm discovering as I live and spend more time in Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells his story and then he backs up a little bit and tells another part of the story and then he backs up and tells another part of the story. Some of these things are overlapping. And today's conversation overlaps the same period of time that we were looking at before. Just to remind ourselves where we are and make certain that we're in here. Uh, remember, we're talking about the area of the Middle East and um, get the right one here. We're talking about a period of time, roughly 450 years before Christ, when the Persian Empire ruled from India all the way to almost Greece and almost fortunes almost down into Egypt. So it covered a tremendous amount of area. Our particular areas, our story in Nehemiah started in Susa. He traveled to Jerusalem. He's still in Jerusalem when we're looking at what we're going to look at today. Uh, these are the trade trails. Um, that's largely still the way that if you travel by car or camel or walk, you'd still be following these basic trails today. We're in the midst of building this wall around the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding it. And that's what we're talking about. It's some things that go on during that. The people, the main players we're gonna be dealing with are a fellow by the name of Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, Sanballat, who is from Samaria, and Geshem, who is south of, of the land or the province of Judea. Um, we're still hearing about many of these peoples today. Largely the people that are up in this area are still in that area to the north of Israel. And these people down here, some of them are in the West Bank, but largely most of them are over here in the Gaza Strip. So you're hearing about them even in the news today. So let's look in Nehemiah chapter 6. What in the world is going on here? Chapter 6, verse 1. Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and to Gresham the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not yet set up the gates, the doors in the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come let us meet together at Chaparim on the plain of Ono. And that's right there. And Nehemiah said, oh, no, because they were planning on doing him harm. Now, how he knew that, I'm not quite certain. We'll find out maybe that there's more conversation going on later on than what is clearly called out of us. But if you remember when Barry was with us three weeks ago, he talked about some of the opposition that was taking place, and particularly Sanballat and Tobiah were conspiring. Now we have Sanballat and Geshem conspiring. And the opposition, remember, was looked in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, if you want to flip back there. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Nehemiah then put the issue in God's hands and then armed the workers 
and set guards. And with one hand, you set bricks and rocks, and with the other hand, you held a sword. And that's what indeed went on. Now, did this opposition happen during the wall building or after the one that we're reading about today? Because it happens to be placed prior to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, and 7, verse 1, 7 verse 1 is where he says, and the wall was done. Um, I'm inclined to think that this happened during the wall building period. We'll find out later. It says that to build the walls itself, to restore the walls, took 56 days. That's an amazing accomplishment, especially when most of the stones are little blocks instead of big ones. So, the question is, it says in chapter 4 that Nehemiah's enemies, that the enemies of the Jews, were getting ready to come and fight with them. Nehemiah never records a battle. He never records a point where these people actually arrived and started to fight with the Jewish people that were rebuilding the wall, or the Jewish people plus the neighbors that were around it. So it appears from what goes on here that they decided, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, decided that since a physical threat failed, um, maybe we'll try a summit conference and appeal to Nehemiah's ego. Why don't you come and meet with us? You're so important that why don't you come and have a meeting with us? at an apparently neutral point. Of course, when you have those kind of summit meetings, today, what's the first thing that arrives at the place where we're going to have a bunch of government leaders go and have a conference? Their security teams arrive weeks in advance and start figuring out who anybody is that might do harm to the leader and getting them set aside. Well, Nehemiah, Yes, he had a contingency of soldiers, as we heard about last week, that he had brought with him from Susa, the capital, and he had a bunch of workers that were with him, but he didn't have a full-blown security team to send down to Ono to make certain that his well-being would be protected before he went down there. So he did the diplomatic thing. He sent him a message, verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now the question is, is what was he really saying? He was telling them that God's work was more important than their meeting. And he's asking a question. I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a work that God's called me to do. Where do you fit into the equation? What's your role? Because he had a letter from Artaxerxes, the king of the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians and the Assyrians that says, if Nehemiah wants your stuff, give it to him. Now, Nehemiah hasn't rolled that letter out, but he does imply to them, eh, you're probably not right in the middle of what God is wanting to have happen here. So, a diplomatic answer. Let's see, let me back up one here. Now, in verse 4, let's see what goes on. Now, in diplomacy, you have to understand there's always back and forth, right? So Nehemiah records for us, and they sent messages to me four times. And I answered them in the same way, same message. Why should I go down there to Ono when God's work is here in Jerusalem? Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And what does it mean to have an open letter in your hand? 
You show it to everybody you meet. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshemu says, and I don't know who Geshemu is, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to King Artaxerxes according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. One of the things we like to do in diplomacy is see if we cannot have a carrot and a stick. How many of you have tried to persuade your children to change direction about something they want to do? And you provide them with a carrot something that you think they might want, and you provide a stick, something that they don't want to have happen, to encourage them to move in the direction you want them to move. Well, that's what Sanballat and his cronies are attempting to do here. Now, it's interesting what he uses as some of the incentives. First of all, he sent his servant, somebody who was of equal stature to Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. That's sort of like being in the president's closest advisors. Sanballat sent his servant, somebody of similar station. So it was an honored messenger. Secondly, he said, there's rumors going around. And Gassimu, who I don't know who he is, but I suspect he is somebody that carries some merchant power in the area. And then he says, and Nehemiah and those people with you are planning to rebel. Now, Let's be honest with ourselves. The first group of Jews that came back to Palestine came back to build the temple. And they ran out of steam and they had to be encouraged and they stepped it up. The group that came back with Ezra a few years before Nehemiah returned to Israel, these people came back to reestablish a city and to reestablish a functioning province in the kingdom of the Persians. But remember what the Jews did when Nebuchadnezzar first set about to conquer him. He set up a puppet king in Israel, said, you're going to be my vassal. And the next thing you know, the puppet king is negotiating with the Egyptians to come up and throw the Babylonians off so they could rebel. The Jewish people have a history of wanting to get rid of anybody other than themselves to rule themselves. So maybe there were a few around there making those kind of noises. But Nehemiah rebel? Think back to chapter 1. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. That's a highly trusted position. You're protecting the king's life by making certain no one can poison him. And when Nehemiah revealed to King Artaxerxes that his heart was burdened, what was the first question Artaxerxes gave to him? When are you coming back? So there's an expectation that Nehemiah is going to return to Artaxerxes. Now that, reply, that implies a level of relationship between them that is of high level of trust. And we have up to now found no reason to believe that Nehemiah is two-faced about anything. So to imply that Nehemiah would rebel against Artaxerxes, that's kind of thing. But remember what the popular thing in politics is? Doesn't really matter what the truth is if you say it often enough, strong enough, 
pretty soon a lot of people start believing it's true. Well, that's what's being implied here. So we don't have much basis for Nehemiah to be rebelling. But there could be a bunch of people stirring the pot to try to say Nehemiah would make a good king. And frankly, he would. He's an effective administrator. He's an effective leader. He would make a good king. But is that his mission? At any point have we seen Nehemiah say anything about being a king? Not a peep. Not a word. Now, you have to understand the Jewish people who have been out of the land and have been studying which scriptures are being written to them. Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah had been written just before they left. What do these scriptures talk about? What scripture at Christmas time do we quote most often? We quote Isaiah. Unto us a child is born. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So I'm sure there were those in the religious community that are saying, we're back in the land, we have a temple, certainly a Messiah should be at hand. So it's pretty easy for them, Sanballat, Tobiah, to kind of stretch the truth to say there's an expectation that there's going to be a Messiah. Eh, maybe Nehemiah's the Messiah. Prophets in Jerusalem? Really? At any point do we read anything in Nehemiah about there being any prophets in Jerusalem? If we go and read the book of Ezra, who's the only prophet in the book of Ezra? It's Ezra. And Ezra is all about the people getting right with God. So, the carrot. Let's get the together and let's figure out how to protect you, Nehemiah. Let's protect your reputation. Let's make certain what gets reported to Artaxerxes is good stuff. Let's make certain that you're protected. Now the question is, what's Nehemiah's response? And if you look at verse 8, chapter 6, again he does the diplomatic thing. He sends a message. I'm sure he sends it back with Sanballat's servant. So I sent a message to him, replying that it's Sanballat, saying, such things as you are saying have not been done. You are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. Nehemiah brings a higher perspective. And the first thing he says, all that stuff in your letter, it's a lie. It's flat out a lie. an invention of your mind. Now, if you've been paying attention to politics over the last six, eight years, we've seen inventions of people's mind take on a sense of reality to the place that we as a nation have spent millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars digging into some lies, flat out, inventions of people's minds. And if you want to cause distress in a kingdom, one thing you can do is have it consume its resources, chasing around rumors, lies, falsehoods, that kind of thing, and it just eats up money and time and attention and energy, and pretty soon the real work isn't being done. 
And remember what the real work is? Nehemiah is about building a wall, a city, and a people. And we'll find that as we continue through his book when we get a chance to look at his further chapters. Sometime when we are missing a pastor in the weeks or months ahead, because we will return here. But these guys, as Nehemiah says, are trying to produce discouragement. Now, discouragement is something that works on us. It works on us in the middle of the night. It works us when we rise up in the morning and the day is, feels like it's just dreary. We have nothing to look forward to and we get up and go. And frankly, I think discouragement is one of the main reasons that promising endeavors fail. Now we have a promising endeavor going on. We're in the process, we're just about ready to set the gates in the wall and it'd be real easy to get discouraged at this place. It's one thing to pick up round rocks that I can pick up and walk over and put back in the wall and get it to stand up again. It's something else to go to the forest and cut down the trees and form them into the gates and put all the steel parts in them and then stand the gates up and make them work. It's a great time. Because without gates, how good is a wall? Not so very much, is it? So, what's Nehemiah's response? Uh, let's see. Not quite there. His response is, God, keep us focused. God, keep us encouraged. God, keep us on task. As far as Nehemiah is concerned, this whole thing with Sanballat and whatnot is over. Well, it really isn't. It keeps going on, and we'll find out some more about that in a few verses. But he's given his response. And I rather suspect that there's been some messages going back and forth between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes um, that say something different than Artaxerxes is hearing from this group of surrounding governors. So Nehemiah's story takes a change. He does something that every good leader should do if you have somebody that should be out doing the work and they're not, you check in and find out why. Now, if we read the list of people who are building a section of the wall, Shemaiah's name shows up in that list. But at some point, Shemaiah quit building the wall and started staying home. And Nehemiah goes to check up on him. Verse 10, Then I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaha, son of Mehetabal, who was confined at home. I don't know. Did he have a rock fall on his foot and he's at home because he's injured? Did he have something else going on? Doesn't say. It just says he's confined at home. May have been a self-imposed thing. Now, who in the world is Shemaiah? Well, if you go back to Ezra chapter 2 and verses 58 through 60, his family is listed in the returning persons who claim to be Levites but did not have family records. Let's read what it says in Ezra chapter 2. All the temple servants and the son of Solomon's servants were 392. That's a whole group of people who were qualified to serve as Levites. Now, these are those who came up from Tel Meshiah, Tel Havishah, Cherub, Adan, and Imar. And if you remember, Imar was the south of Jerusalem if we looked at that map. They were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, neither were they of Israel. The sons of Delilah, Delaha, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekalah. 
So Shemaiah, who is a son of Delahah, is grouped with the sons of Tobiah and the sons of Nekalah. Now, who are these people? These are people who may have had one Jewish parent, may have had a Jewish grandparent, but are largely people who are no longer here. Why are they in Jerusalem? What happens when you have something happening that looks like it's got the favor of the king? A whole bunch of people want to get in on the glory, right? They want to be part of the thing that's going on, and rebuilding Jerusalem is the thing. This is what Artaxerxes, the ruler of the Medes and Persians, is invested in. So certainly you want to be there and you want to be visible and you want people to know that you're involved in that process. But Ezra is very specific. These people don't have the documentation to prove that they are qualified to serve in the temple. And as a consequence, yeah, you may be, but without it, you're not going to. So, it's important to understand that Shemaiah is lumped in with Tobiah's offspring, which would imply that Shemaiah is probably not a full-blooded Jew. Certainly he hasn't, and whether he's actually a Levite or not, that's a good question. Going back to Nehemiah chapter 6, second half of verse 10, Shemaiah said to Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us choose, let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Want to be prophet? Where did he get this information that says they're coming to kill and they're going to come at night to do it. Uh, the rumor mill? We're not certain. But he seems to be pretty adamant about it. And he seems to be, even though he's shut in at home, be willing to travel over to the temple and spend the night inside the temple. Now, are you supposed to be inside the temple at night? Particularly if you're not a Levite? If you're not of the priesthood? The answer is no. It's a sunup to sundown operation. So he's trying to get Nehemiah to do something that is contrary to God's instructions about how the temple is supposed to be used. He's trying to get Nehemiah to use the temple as a sanctuary when that's not its purpose. Its purpose is a place of worship, a place of acknowledging guilt and seeking remission from sins. It's not a protection for my physical well-being. That's not its intent. That's not what it was created for. So, Shemaiah was doing something other than building a wall. He was actually trying to mislead misguide or misencourage the wall builder. So in another part of 10, he said, let us meet together and they're going to come and kill you. Now, what's Nehemiah's response? First of all, Shemaiah was an apparent wannabe servant of God. Now, how many of those do we have around us? Wannabe servants of God. It's a great thing to be a leader in a church. It's a great thing to be a leader of a movement. But if you aren't really God's person. And he gives Nehemiah a scary warning. They're going to kill you while you're sleeping. He gave it as if it were a prophecy. 
Was it? No, I don't think so. And he's certainly willing to get out of the house to go hide in the temple. Now, I think what's important to us is we need to give great notice to Nehemiah's response. But I said, should a man like me flee? That's an interesting response. Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. That's a pretty emphatic response. Now remember, Nehemiah's brother is a priest. So what does that make Nehemiah? Makes him a Levite. He has the right to go into the temple. He has the right to actually go into the holy place in the temple. Because he is a priest. By heritage. Is he a priest by training and vocation? No. And we have no evidence that he serves in the temple. But we find that he does do the pastoral role of a Levite of teaching the people when we read the upcoming chapters in Nehemiah. And he says, uh-uh, I'm not going to go do this. So what kind of a man is Nehemiah? Nehemiah already knows, and you got to understand, when you were cupbearer to the king, that was the equivalent in those days of being one of the closest advisors to the president of the United States. That's like being in his cabinet. You have been in the halls of power. You're at the place where decisions for an empire are being made. Nehemiah has a pretty good idea of who he is. And he knows that God has called him from the cabinet of the president to do a work in Jerusalem. And he's saying, and you want to distract me from this? I don't think so. Secondly, Nehemiah is not going to misuse the temple for a purpose that it was not intended. He knows the temple is for worship. The temple is a place for remission of sins. The temple is a place where God is present. And to be a physical hiding place for Nehemiah personally is not it. And Nehemiah has something that is, seems to be very important in a leader. He has discernment. And a number of things just don't pass the smell test for Nehemiah. And that being the case, he has a firm decision. I will not. Now what message is there in that for us? There are times we need to say, I will not. Because of who God is, of who I am, and what God has called me to do. And what God has revealed about himself. Now looking into verse 12. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. In other words, send a bad report to Artaxerxes. He could smell it out. He could figure out that this isn't his. Now, how did he find out that Shemaiah was uh, on the payroll of Sanballat and Tobiah? Maybe God told him. My guess is there's enough people around that 
information comes to Nehemiah from a number of sources, and it was fairly easy to figure it out. So Nehemiah makes a firm decision, and He had a God-given understanding of the motivation and based on the level of family connections that Tobiah had in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is trying to figure out who's who in the zoo. Now, an important question in verse 14 is vengeance is whose job? Now at this point, Nehemiah has had enough opposition from enough different people, it would have been real easy to start rounding them up and putting them in jail. That's a typical human thing to do when the opposition gets to be too much, what do you do? You try to get them out of your hair. You either kill them, jail them, or run them out of town. Because they were making Nehemiah's life less than pleasant. Verse 14. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Neodiah, the prophetless, prophetless, my little tongue is not quite tingled, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So yes, there were some prophets around town. They appear to be false ones. And he recognizes that. But remember what Nehemiah does. He's taking his stand, and then he says, remember, oh my God. How often when we're starting to get angry with people do we go to the Lord? Or do we let what's rising up in the bile of our stomach come squirting out of our mouth? He said, these guys are doing me dirt. They're making my life miserable. They're upsetting the people that I'm trying to help. And lo and behold, he said, God, you know what they're up to? They're your problem. Now, Nehemiah, we have to remember, probably knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. He could start quoting from any place in those that he wanted to at any point in time. And I'm pretty certain he knew Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution in the due time, and in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. But the important part of those verses is, God is speaking and says, Vengeance is mine, and retribution in due time will be what I said about. In verse 41 through 43, he says, God says, And if I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes a hold on justice, I will render vengeance upon my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the stain of slain and the captives. From long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nation, and his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. I'm sure that these verses were in Nehemiah's mind. So that's what he does. He says, God, 
That's your problem. But of course, one way to put an end to the opposition is to get the work that God sets you to do done. And in verse 15, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elua in 52 days. I think I said 56 before I was wrong. 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been done had been accomplished with the help of our God. In other words, this was a superhuman feat. This was a God thing, to rebuild a wall without any of the right stuff in terms of the materials other than the rubble from the old wall, and to get it done in 52 days. That's miraculous. That'd be the equivalent of building all the building around here in 52 days. You think we can build anything in 52 days? I don't care how big the team is you put on it. Just jumping through the hoops to get all the permits takes longer than that. But that's an amazing accomplishment. And it became clear that this was not a human work, it was a God, it was a God thing. But we'll find out that the opposition continues some more. Now we learn that it's a tribal thing. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah because he was the son-in-law of Shenekherah, the son of Arab, and his son Jehoahana had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. I need Nick up here to pronounce all of these words. Now, that's hard to figure out. If I followed all the diagrams right, this makes a whole lot more sense to me. Here in the middle right here we have Tobiah. He's married to somebody who has a Jewish heritage. Now, remember one of the first things that Moses told the people of Israel as they were standing on the east side of the Jordan River to the south side of the Ammonite nation, he said, you shall not give your sons to their daughters. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You will not intermarry with the inhabitants of the land. What do we have going on here? Somebody probably from the tribe of Asher when we trace it back, marrying Tobiah. Now we have half-breed children. That's not supposed to be happening to the people of Israel. But even more interesting, we have from the tribe of Judah, this chain of command, and this daughter is being given to Tobiah's son as a wife. Now why were they doing that? And this apparently took place before Nehemiah was on the scene. Probably took place during the, about the time Ezra first came back. If you remember reading in Ezra, he preaches against intermarriage. And if we look forward, we're going to see some more about Nehemiah about intermarriage. But why is intermarriage a problem? Moses said, intermarriage will lead to you forgetting who your God is and you will start worshiping the gods of the people you are intermarrying with. Intermarriage has been a problem all the way from Abraham.
but in particular, since the people were coming back from Egypt, intermarriage was something that they were not supposed to practice. And yet when we look at the kings of Israel, particularly godly kings were compromised because of their intermarriage. Look at Solomon. It says his wives polluted his heart toward the Lord. His wives from all the nations around. Look down through the other kings. Every time there was intermarriage, things were not necessarily good. The northern kingdom went largely to pot because they were very lax about intermarriage. And it went away 150 years before the southern kingdom was captured by Babylon. Intermarriage is a problem. So now we're in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem, and we have all kinds of people. Remember we saw just a few verses back that the sons of Tobiah were being said, now nah, you probably can't prove that you're a Levite so that you can serve in the temple. Well, well now we know why the sons of Tobiah were vying for it. This marriage is three-quarters Jewish. Certainly I'm a Jew. Paul will tell you it's what happens in here that makes you a Jew, not what happens externally. But what we find here, and we look at all these verses to back it up, is that we have Tobiah closely tied to people in Jerusalem. Well, if he was, and we read later in Nehemiah, there was a lot of other intermarriage going on. Therefore, we have a lot of information passing back and forth. Reading again, starting verse 17. And in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of a prominent Jewish family. And his son had married into another prominent Jewish family. If you go back and look at the people who rebuilt the wall, Meshulam was a two-times builder. He built one section of the wall, got it done, went over and built another section of the wall. He may have been one of the biggest builders of the bunch. And yet you have these family ties. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in a smaller town and in a community where everybody was a shirt tail relative. I grew up in a place like that. It wasn't quite true. But every place I went in the Bitterroot Valley when I was growing up, in any gathering of people, it was rare, rare, if at least one person in the room wasn't part of the overall family that I was part of. Didn't make any difference to county the fair, didn't make any difference to the school board, didn't make any difference where it was. I grew up with two of my cousins, first grade all the way through high school. And I guarantee you, our deeds and misdeeds were well discussed amongst our upper parentage. And there were no unknown pieces of information. That information went back and forth. Well, if you had somebody in the family who was opposed to what was going on, things got a little messy. And I remember when we had a deal go on in the church in Corvallis, where I was, that ended up in a bunch of the members of the church going off to other places. Most of the members of the family decided to stay, but the members of the family who were in other places heard rumors about what caused this division in the church. And it created tension in the family, and it created consideration, and it's decisions were made about what was going to be done based on what would not upset the family. 
as opposed to making decisions on what was right. Nehemiah is facing this. So, verse 19. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reporting my words to him. Interesting. That pipeline back and forth. Nehemiah couldn't say anything that Tobiah didn't hear about. And Tobiah had people here that are always saying, Nehemiah, yeah, not so much. Tobiah, he's great. He's part of the family. And then Nehemiah so goes on and says, And Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. In other words, he would send things to the family members that were in Jerusalem that ne Tobiah had connections to, and they would deliver these letters to Nehemiah, a constant stream of downers. We're going to get you kind of letters. Now, what was Nehemiah's response to all this public and personal opposition? And chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, give us some insight into that. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanai, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. I think that refers to Hananiah. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards at, from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Now what's Nehemiah saying here? He's saying, I'm going to continue doing what I'm going to do. But more importantly, notice what he did. He said, you wait long enough in the morning, in other words, probably about 10 o'clock when the sun is hot, before you open the gates. And then before your guard shift is over, and let's assume that they worked an eight or 10 hour day, that means that somewhere just before sunset, you close the gates before you go home to have supper. Because they didn't have enough people to run two shifts of guards. But what is he doing by telling the people to do this? He's limiting their exposure to attack from all these people around them that want to attack them. Secondly, he's making a statement to them. I'm not afraid of you. We're going to do what God wants us to do. Jerusalem, as you remember, is a city that exists to support the government of Judea, of Israel, and to be a place that facilitates the temple the place of worship. And that's what Nehemiah says this city is going to be. Now, notice that he says, it's not very well populated. By that, he's saying there are not many houses there. There are not many people living in Jerusalem. As you know, no city raises enough food for itself. It's all got to be brought in. A city is a place where commerce takes place, but most everything that's bought, sold, or traded in the city comes from outside of the city. And what he's saying is, we're going to limit the amount of time the gates are open. Therefore, we control what's coming in. We're going to practice some homeland security. And we're going to do a good job of it. Now, what's Nehemiah doing? He's continuing God's plan. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Nehemiah, as we found out last week, is not a man who's trying to get rich. Good grief, he paid out of his pocket 
what would today would be literally thousands of dollars a day just to feed the probably 300 people that are eating at his table. And yet he's going on and continuing the Lord's work. Luke 12, 42 and 43 says, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? This is an answer to one of the parables Jesus was telling. Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Notice the word faithful and sensible steward. I think that's a description Nehemiah would make of himself. In Titus we read, for the leadership of the church, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So then the question becomes, what do we do when we're presented with opposition? We need to do like Nehemiah did and make certain we're in the center of God's will. Notice how frequently Nehemiah was in prayer and implied, because of his responses, the recentering of his perspective according to the word of God. And we read a couple of places where he even changed what he was doing as he studied God's word. We learned last week that he changed how he was lending money to people and he went from lending to giving. Secondly, remain to remember who I am in Christ. What was it that Nehemiah said? Should a man such as I? Can you say, would a person such as I do this kind of thing when it's questionable? That you clearly know, clear enough, what God has called you to do, that you know that this is not a first choice decision. I've heard it said that for most Christians, right and wrong is not the issue. For most Christians, the question is, what is good? What is better? What is best? And Nehemiah is one who clearly understood what his high calling was and responded to it. And lastly, remember the glory is to God and not to me. What did Nehemiah keep referring the people to? God is doing a work. I'm participating in it. I have a role to play. God has given me a mission, but it's God's work. And the glory goes to God. And when we face opposition, we need to remember that as well. That the glory needs to go to God. Because the opposition, although it's directed at us, is really directed against God. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words, that the example of Nehemiah, that the truth of what Nehemiah has to say to us, will touch our hearts and minds today. And Father, I pray we would be people who are clearly enough understanding of your word and clear enough about how you have developed us as people that we would be able to say with Nehemiah when challenged to do that which is questionable, should a person such as I do this? And the answer being no. And that's an answer that's schooled by you. Heavenly Father, I pray also that we would understand that we are participating in a work that's bigger than us. And as a consequence, we can understand that you have a much bigger stake in it than we do. Therefore, we can relax and be your faithful servant. 
In all of this we pray to your honor and glory. Amen.